So I get there and the first thing the guy does, he's like, Hey man, you want a beer? And I was like, sure. And, uh, about a half hour goes by and he goes, so, uh, you, you smoke. And I was like, weed. He goes, no, like pulls out a meth pipe. He was like, do you smoke? And I was like, I fucking do. Right. <laughs> so like, there's another cat like, hell yeah, man, I'm getting free dope here. And, uh, like we just really, we smoked a lot of dope and we started to like, we got each other worked up. We got each other pissed off. And like to see the things that I was upset about upset other people and like feel justification in my, in my, my views was like liberating. It was relieving. This is Meredith for real, the curious introvert. And I'm Meredith. I explore the questions people think, but don't ask out loud either because they're taboo or thanks to cultural hypnosis. My mission, and yours if you choose to accept it, is to inspire curiosity by exploring the nuance and paradox of our world. Each episode is different, so bring your ADD and your earbuds and have a look around. Well, hello, Curiosities. I bet your curiosity is up as to where Meredith is. She'll be with you shortly, but I'm Gail Scott visiting from the Midlife Moxie podcast, where we're all about midlife women making this one of the best seasons of our lives. We bring to you stories of inspiring women who are doing the darn thing, who are living their best life in this mid-season, as well as experts in topics that you care about. Check us out over on Apple Podcasts to be part of the community and the movement. Now let's get on with the show. You're listening to Meredith For Real, the curious introvert, and here is the head curiosity herself, the one and only amazing Meredith. Hey, Curiositors, it's me, Meredith. When I first heard about this week's guest, I didn't know his story, obviously, and I just assumed that it would be one of two scenarios. A, he had a transformational religious experience and is now an evangelizing saint, or B, he became a politically correct PR puppet robotically saying what he was quote-unquote supposed to say. It turns out, Neither of those are true, as you will find out soon enough. And this is basically a good time to tell you that this episode is explicit and it is full of triggers, like all of the triggers, basically. Also, we had some technical challenges that you can hear in the episode, but I wanted to let you know that they are fixed in next week's part two. This episode really got me thinking about what I've noticed about extremism, and I've observed extremism and othering as kind of a protective reflex towards a perceived threat because it it doesn't seem that it's like one group's ideas are so good that everyone should join them. It's that the ideas that the other groups have are so dangerous that we must end them. And I'm curious what you've observed in extremism and if you notice any of those same patterns in this episode so let me know instagram is the easiest place to find me at meredith for real also whoever is listening in iceland i'd really love to connect with you so reach out to me on instagram as always a giant thank you to my returning listeners and if you're new here a huge welcome i started this podcast to inspire people to choose curiosity over judgment There's no specific order to listen to episodes, except the part two episodes like this week, of course. And at the end of each episode, I give a sneak peek for next week and offer a next episode suggestion. So have a look around and hit play on whatever grabs your attention. All right. Enjoy the show. Imagine you meet a nice guy from middle America. 
He's an Iraq and Afghanistan combat war veteran who's just returned home. You both love 90s rap and voted for Obama. It's not long before he joins the KKK. You didn't expect that, did you? Well, my next guest spent three years as a radicalized Imperial Nighthawk in the Georgia White Knights. Today's part one of his story, where he'll share how he went from serving shoulder to shoulder with people of all races in the Army, to hunting them down and physically assaulting them, and how his wife's successful intervention led not only to his reformation, but also to him creating a de-radicalization program designed specifically with veterans in mind. Former neo-Nazi, from extreme hate to spreading love, from white pride to proud dad, Chris Bugley. Thanks for coming to the show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so you said early on that you felt like you were groomed for extremism. I've never heard anyone say that before. Can you explain what that looked like for you? Yeah, I mean, so like grooming, when we think of the word grooming, we think of like sex trafficking and things right. like that, where you start with your victims and you start to desensitize them. Well, that I mean, like that's been going on my whole life. Um, I was molested as a kid by a very close family member, and that grooming process was very long and drawn out. I mean, from the time I was old enough to walk until the molestation started, the grooming was taking place. Um, I just, my parents were very racist uh, behind closed doors, mostly my father, but my mother didn't really like provide objective, like, you know, ideology to it. So like, I heard, I, I would hear this a lot uh, the racist ideology. And, uh, I grew up in Cleveland in the mid nineties when there was like this big busing integration act where like they were taking 15 or 20 kids from the West side of Cleveland and they bust them to the East side, like 180 blocks into the East side to a mostly black school. And they did the same thing to like 15 or 20 black kids and busted, bust them over to the, to the white side of, of town. And, um, I never really understood why the city was so segregated the way it was, but, uh, like all of these little things that happen throughout your life are like grooming you into an extremist ideology from like confirmation bias to like the, the stuff that my dad would, would tell me at home, the shit that he would say about, you know, your mom can't get government assistance because it's loaded up with blacks on the welfare system, blah, blah, blah. And you know, the, the ideology around it, like they were, they were horrible people, violent, uncivilized, savage, blah, blah, blah. And then I go to school at like 10 years old and was like physically assaulted, urinated on, my shoes were stolen and uh, my teeth were through my lip um, on the very first day of school. So that was like an opening, like, yep, that was right. Of idea for me. Um, like, you know, I joined the army and like, I'm not saying that everybody that joins the military is extremist, um, but there is a very extreme ideology around the military. Uh, I mean, you know, just taking from like when we joined the war in, in Afghanistan, where we got involved um, in Iraq and, you know, just the way that the military culture changed from like that old school Vietnam style jungle warfare uh, training scenarios to like desert warfare uh, training the way that every single target that wasn't one of our green pop-up targets in our lane 
was like a big poster of like a traditional Muslim aged male of military age, like pointing an AK-47 at you or an RPG, um, suicide vest, uh, men and women, both um, children with suicide vest. And there was never there was never like that target to like check your your focus and be like, hey, would you like a bottle of water? You know, and be like, oh, I don't shoot that when I go to this. So, like, it was that visual desensitization, the training scenarios that we went through. There was, like, they were always bad guys. There was never, like, a good guy that was like, hey, we're going to get, they're going to blow you up. Go this way. Like, they were all just, everybody was against you. So, it with the, the lack of uniforms and just, like, there was so much that went into, like, creating this fear as well as this, for the Muslim community as a whole, in my opinion, just experiencing Islam through such a very narrow lens was extreme in itself. And another part of the extremism model that you describe is what you call a cognitive opening. And you experienced that while you were serving. Can you tell us about what a cognitive opening is and how you believe you experienced that? So cognitive opening is it's a it's a situation or a trauma scenario that happens um, and it can be a compound trauma or a like a continuous trauma um, that it, it opens the person's ideology up to extremism. So my cognitive opening was when my best friend Daniel Wallace was on a route on a routine mission where we were taking supplies to another base so that they could do medical services for local nationals in the area and he was killed because he wanted to get iv bags and antibiotics and medicine to this uh to this other base that we were resupplying so that they could help the local community um i remember that was the very in my life that I ever experienced a hatred towards an entire group of people the way that I did the hatred I experienced towards the homosexual community because of the molestation. So um, I think that that was the shift. That was the opening in my life that that trauma opened me up to anger and just the, the will and the want to do violence to, to, to a certain demographic. So you said he was killed because he was trying to get supplies to another area. What do you what do you mean he was So when when you're in the military you have resupply missions uh sometimes the base that you're trying to resupply with ammunition, radio equipment, sensitive items that like if fell into the wrong hands could create a very serious problem for US soldiers. Uh night vision goggles and medical supplies so that base could open and run its clinic that helped the local nationals around that, that base receive medical care and attention. Um, the base that we were resupplying was too small for an airstrip. So we couldn't use like a, a cargo plane or, um, you know, helicopters, things of that, because it was just too much equipment for, you know, for that base. So we had to drive it in. Uh, and that's the way we did it all the time is, is we would just drive the equipment from our base to the base that was uh, about a day south of us. So, 
So were you in the, the vehicle together? What happened? Yeah. So we were driving down route Jeep. Um, Oregon Valley from Oregon E to Sharana. And we were told to stop and check the load because we used a big flatbed trailer. It's called like a 916 trailer. It's got a big gooseneck on it that like hooks to the truck. And the binders and the cargo nets on there were, were rocking real bad. And we were getting ready to go through a wadi, which is a dried up riverbed. And they come over and they said, hey, this load's shifting real bad. Get out and see if you can't tighten these binders down a little more. Because if this load spills, we're going to be here for a few days. Uh, we have no close air support. We have no, you know, QRF, quick reaction force. So it's just us. We get into a tussle in the bottom because I smoke cigarettes and I'm on a lot of ammunition. So I can't really smoke in the vehicle. He chewed tobacco. So he had his nicotine fix. We both had to urinate. There was plenty of Gatorade bottles. So I felt like I should win by fucking default because I needed to light a cigarette. <laughs> Everything else was equal across the board, right? So um, we get to we get to goofing off, mo moving around, and um, the back of the door on the MRAP pops open, and he beats me out the back of the door, and never stood back up. I leaned out. I thought he fell, and I leaned out to laugh at him, and I noticed that he had he had a bullet hole above his left eye. And like instant swelling, the back of the head was like splattered. Uh, it actually had gotten on me because I was so close. Um, I remember, I didn't think about it. I just jumped out. I started to try to pack a wound. And it was kind of like, uh, like put a vase back together in a pillowcase that had been broken. I didn't really... So, like, I, it was my first experience with post-mortem reflexes. Uh, I noticed that the eye that wasn't completely swelled shut was kind of looking and traveling around. And, like, and I remember, like, he was trying to yawn. It looked like he was trying to yawn. His mouth was moving. And uh, there was just a lot of activity in his body that, like, just didn't register. Like, he's, he's gone. Um and I just like that was that was that that was that moment. Like I didn't understand why he was targeted, why he was killed, why he didn't want to allow the medical supplies and the other supplies that we were taking to that base that was going to benefit the people in the region. Um, and I just got angry, and I, I really started to drink heavily. Um, I was having alcohol mailed to me in water bottles, so like a case of these water bottles would be each one dumped out. Oh, and wow. refilled with rum, vodka, whatever we could get our hands on. Uh, if we used Coca-Cola or Pepsi bottles, then we would use dark liquors like bourbon or whiskey. Mm -hmm. uh, mouthwash bottles, we would have filled with vodka or, or rum and a couple of drops of food coloring added to it to make it look like mouthwash. I mean, I had an entire bar in in my my little room where I stayed at. Wow. And so that sounds like it's kind of, it allowed an opening for addiction to start to creep in. Yeah. Uh, I started to self-medicate with alcohol because I had a lot of feelings of emotions that were rushing in that I didn't, I didn't like, I, I couldn't control them. So the alcohol helped me numb those. Um, also very dangerous to myself and to the other members of my, my team and unit that I was involved with um, to be impaired while doing that job. Right. Um, but yeah, so then when I get home from that, that tour in 2009, on May 30 or May 21st of 2009, 
I was in a training accident where I wrecked a Humvee. And, uh, I broke my back in, in, in that accident. I rolled it once end over end and seven barrel rolls, one oh of the soft gosh. shell Humvees. Yeah. Uh, my helmet, my Kevlar flew out the fucking window and they were like, oh my God, that's his head. So nobody would come and help me. Oh no. Because they thought you were decapitated. I thought I was decapitated. So oh. I'm like hanging out, like folded up in this Humvee. They, I, the guys finally get up to me and like start to like chain the vehicle to another vehicle so it doesn't flip back over. And like I climb out and I was like, guys, and they freak out. Like everybody was scared. Like here I am with a broke back and trying to stand up. Um, and that was my introduction to opiate painkillers. So that the cognitive opening between the molestation, the, the trauma that I sustained with, with Daniel overseas, then the, the lowered inhibition and cognitive processing that was taking place due to being stuck in a bed for three months on like very strong 30, 30 milligram Oxycontin. Oh my gosh. 180 a month. Like, and then on top of that, I got three refills. So that's 180 times three. That's how many Oxycontins I was doing a month. Um, like, I just turned into like a zombie Nazi. Like I was just angry at everything. And then on top of that, there was all this pressure to put myself in a box when I come home. That like I'm either pro-life, I'm pro-choice, um, pro-gay marriage, or I'm anti-LGBTQ. Like there was no area for like a gray zone with me. And I felt like every turn, media, our news, our just society as a whole was trying to push this radical agenda on everybody. And I just didn't have an answer. I didn't know if I was pro-life or pro-choice. I didn't know if I was like pro-gay marriage. It was all really new to me. Hey, Curiositors, just a quick pause to show gratitude to our sponsors and give you some special deals. If trash TV leaves you feeling drained and you want to support creators like yours truly, check out Stream Moco. You can search shows by your mood and even, you know, watch my show, The Curious Introvert. For every $3.99 subscription, they give away a dollar for good and support their creators like your girl. Find my affiliate link in the episode description or the bio link in my Instagram account, Stream Moco, the streaming network that gives a damn. Listen, if the last two years have given you a chronic eye twitch, you should consider trying medical marijuana. I highly recommend it. See what I did there? There's lots of ways for it to help you. So if you have questions and if you're the least bit curious, Google Empathic Practice Pensacola. It's the most non-intimidating way to get your medical card in Florida. Their in-house doctor and holistic support make them the easy choice. Empathicpractice.us if you've got backyard barbecue plans for 2022, but mosquitoes are not invited, I recommend Insec. I've been using their pest control service for several years now. They have a certified mosquito identification specialist on staff, and pollinator care is always top of mind. If you live in the Florida Panhandle or the Gulf Coast of Alabama, give them a call, ensec.net. The UWF Historic Trust. We shoot the show at the Pensacola Museum of History. It not only houses exhibits of lesser-known Pensacola history, it's an event space too. So if you need a unique space in downtown Pensacola for a fundraiser, networking event, or a corporate party, take a look at historicpensacola.org. 
And if you want to tour one of the 12 museums, get your tickets in person so you can show the agent one of my emails and get $2 off an adult ticket. Get emails by texting REAL to 66866. Now back to the show. Like I'm a civilian now. Like I'm right. hyper-focused on my military career and my military goal. I have time to think about this shit now and I just don't know. And no, There was no... There's no lead way when you're like, I don't know. Somebody's always right there to be like, well, you should be this way because of this and this and this. And it's like, right. cool, thanks for the information. Um, <laughs> it just got so overbearing that, like, I remember I just looked down and I was so defeated. I was just so defeated not knowing what I stood. I knew what I stood for. Like, I stood for liberty and justice and and like the old school idea of America, not this new hyper-politicized, hyper-woke, hyper-vigilant. So it's like, I need time, y'all. Like, let me figure some shit out. And on top of that, like, uh, the pills had manifested into, like, other drugs, heroin, methamphetamine. Because obviously, after a while, you, pr- you build a tolerance to pills, and heroin's way cheaper. Um, and meth and just, like, everything, man. And, and I finally, I looked down, and I was like, man... I'm white. And I don't have a place anywhere but with white people because I'm damn sure not a fucking Democrat. And I'm pretty sure I'm not a Republican. Because I don't know, I'm unaccepted in either group. Mm. And like the only people that accepted me were white nationalists and, and KKK members. And like that was okay. Didn't have to choose anything. I could just be me. So you were angry, injured, addicted, and displaced. And then how the KKK came in, but how how did it enter your life? How did you, you know, become a Klansman? That seems like a big jump, you know, like... Yeah, I mean, mean, you're painting a picture that it really wasn't a big jump, that it was a buildup, but I think... For, you know, I, growing up, I definitely heard low-key comments um, around town that were racist, but it was like for those people, their saving grace was, hey, at least I'm not in the KKK. You know what I mean? Like that was the line. That was the bar. The bar was low. But for you, you know, it, it was enough. It was, there was an opening there and it felt like a fit for some reason. So kind of help us understand how you went from where you're at at that moment to you're a bonafide member. Yeah. So, I mean, like just, it just everything combined, like it's not a, it, it doesn't happen like overnight. Like when I tell you that, like I broke my back in May of 2009, like I'm still in the military. I'm still living with this injury. I'm still recovering. I'm still, on the sidelines from my military career. So from 2009 to 2013, when I finally exit training due to med board, like all of this stuff is building, 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 building the drug addiction, spiraling out of control. I'm not on an active book because I'm on injured list. I'm, I'm at home. Uh, I'm not taking as many drug tests as everybody else. I'm getting by skating under the radar because, Hey, he's, we're putting him out. Uh, he's getting med board discharge. We're giving him his, his honorable discharge next year. Like focus on our active guys that are up for promotion that are up for, you know, schools and this and that. So 
Like, there's a very long years where I'm just I'm meddling in this ideology. I'm paying attention more to MSNBC, Fox News, CNN. So I'm building this, like, aggression towards everybody, right? Because, like, you, you, you think about it, like, Fox News, oh, they only push the white supremacist agenda. And MSNBC only pushes the, the Democratic agenda. And it's like... Trying to like split the difference and watch both of them and see what's going on in your in your world, and it's like you just see like this attack on Southern America and this attack towards like the Civil War Confederate statues and things like that. And I really never had like a big interest in it. Like I've always been like a Civil War buff. Uh, it's a very influential part of like modern day military tactics and procedures. Um, all of our bases are named after civil war generals i mean it's a very important part of military history and tradition so i just felt like it was more of an attack on my military history i don't know why i took it that way but like i was already feeling like i was targeted and attacked just because i was white and didn't want to say where i stood on certain key issues and the community you know plus i I mean we were really struggling we were poor um really a friend of mine pointed this out years later poverty is the catalyst to hate when you're in a, a minimum wage dead-end job barely struggling to keep the lights on and gas in your car to get back and forth to work um your wife is ineligible for food assistance because you make too much to help with groceries so you're eating ramen noodles you're feeding your children ramen noodles every night uh refugees coming to the country from you know wherever it was at the time whether it was Afghanistan, Iraq uh, Syria you know, whenever we've always got a different war that's displayed the Ukrainians will be the next group of refugees right so you're a poor rural American and it doesn't matter if you're white or black or Hispanic or whatever but you see all of this attention and focus being given to help refugees and people, immigrants, it pisses you off because it's like, I put my, my life on the line. I dedicated my life to serve this country and I'm being thrown to the side because I'm no longer valuable. Like, where's my assistance? Where's the help with my food? Where's the help with my, my light bill? And it's not because I'm not working. It's not because I'm not attempting so like you get that anger and like my my one of my best friends, Dr. Haval Kelly, is a Syrian refugee. I think he knew the Washington Post article. That's me and him. He was like, dude, I've never like he came to my house. I first started to like get my life back together. And he was like, I've never been to a refugee camp as bad as your neighborhood. I lived in refugee camps in Germany. I was in refugee camps all across Europe before I got to come to the United States and never one of them were as bad as the neighborhood you live in. The house that you live in is falling apart. Like what's in your cabinets? There's barely any food in your cabinets, man. Like this is me doing the best I can do. This is me fucking doing it without help, without assistance. And he's like, even when I came to this country, assistance, there were people there to get us where we needed to be. And, help us with all these things. And so like his analogy is like, Chris came from zero 
and everybody praises him for that. And he's like, don't praise me for that. You know, like in all actuality, and I, and I, I even feel bad saying it because like, this is his story to tell. And he can say it because he's a refugee, he's a Syrian immigrant, and he loves this country as much as I do. But he can say this and not catch flack for it. But when I say it, I catch flack that I pay twice as much advance as he has, and I get zero recognition or, or, or attention for that. And I think that amongst all of it, the anger, not having a support system, all the effort that I put into this country, given away to immigrants and refugees at the time, coupled with my addiction and my anger that I had, it was an outlet. It was a justification for my anger that wasn't real. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So like now I say that so that I can say this, I see refugees and immigrants come to this country and I want to see them experience the American dream. I want to see them get the help and the assistance that they need. A lot of things out there for people like that. There's a lot of programs. There's a lot of nonprofits and, and 501s out there that's dedicated strictly to that. I challenge people to, to create these 501s and these nonprofits that help the rural Americans that are struggling, that are the modern day American refugees. That's where hate springs up. That's where hate's grown. That's where hate cultivates. That's the Petri dish of hate. Hmm. Rural America. How did you go from this is your state of mind and now you're, you're in the KKK? What was the recruitment process for you? So it was different for me than it was a lot of people. Um, there's different tactics of recruitment, right? Like some people seek it out. Some people stumble upon it. And then some people are targeted for recruitment. So I fell into like two of those categories. Actually, all three, really. So I go home and just like out of shits and giggles, I'm like organizations to help advance the white race. How do I protect the white race? And Google never lets you down, man. And the very first, the very first response, the very first thing was the loyal white knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And I was like, oh, this should be good. Right. So I go to their website and I'm reading like their, their spiel, right? Cause you can't go too far into the website. There's only who we are, what we stand for, contact us. So I'm reading it and I'm like, okay, so they're family oriented, they're Christian based, they're, you know, they're, they're to further the white race because there's all these organizations out there to help, you know, further immigrants and refugees and, and, you know, the black community, the Hispanic community, but like, there's really nothing out there for guys like me. Right. And like, yeah, I get the Montgomery GI bill, blah, blah, blah. But I still got to come out of pocket a lot to help out with that. Get student loans, financial aid. I mean, like, you know, I, it was more just like, it was very spiteful, right? Like I'm going to see what these guys are about. So I put in my contact phone number and an email address. And like a couple of days later, I get a call from a guy and like, we just really just had a conversation kind of like me and you were having right now where like he would talk, I would agree. I would talk, he would agree. And he was like, man, I, I really, I, I just, I'd, I'd like to get to know you a little more, man. Uh, we're having a barbecue next weekend, blah, blah, blah. I think it was, it was starting to get warm out. So, I mean, like barbecues were kind of getting going again. And he was like, uh, I'd like, 
you to just show up for a few hours and you know meet meet some of the the guys I know and you know just get to know them. So I go and obviously I leave my family and, and Melissa and the kids at home, and I go and uh, at this point like like it already started to experiment with harder drugs like meth and and heroin, and it was showing. You know what I mean? Like there was a lot of like I'm 190 pounds now. I was 110, if that, wow. with wet clothes, right? So, like, you could see every bone in my face. Like, I was sick. Um, so I get there, and the first thing the guy does, he's like, hey, man, you want a beer? And I was like, sure. And uh, about a half hour goes by, and he goes, so uh, you, you smoke? And I was like, weed? He goes, no. Like, pulls out a meth pipe. He was like, do you smoke? And I was like, I fucking do. Right? <laughs> so, like, there's another cat like, hell yeah, man. I'm getting free dope here. And, uh, like we just really, we smoked a lot of dope and we started to like, we got each other worked up. We got each other pissed off. And like to see the things that I was upset about, upset other people and like feel justification in my, in my, my views was like liberating. It was relieving, you know? And, and so like. I start to spend more time with the guy. His name was Roy Denburton. Like, I don't mind docs in his ass. Like, he's, he's a piece <laughs> of shit, right? Uh, his name was Roy Denburton, and he lived uh, He lived in Georgia here. Um, I can't remember exactly where. I think it was down towards, like... That's okay. We don't need to give his address. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I, I don't care. I just, I, I just want... He's all over, dude. Like, we called him Pickle uh, because he got caught with some compromising photos later on oh. of a cute... And, you know... Um, but yeah, so I mean, like, so basically, you were starting to feel like you had a tribe, and and so at some point he said, "Do you wanna?" And you said, "I do." And now you're a clansman. Is that how it went? Yeah. So that's the that's the the skinny of it. I mean, yeah. Okay. And what were the some of the other professions of other people in your particular chapter? <laughs> so there was a very high. No, well, not just my particular chapter, but like we, you know, we interacted with other groups like the NSM, uh, you know, other white supremacist groups like militia groups, uh, three percenters, Boogaloo Boys um, that were dual members. So like there was members in our group that were also members of like three percenter Georgia Security Force uh, was one of the militias that, that harbored a large amount of white supremacists. Um, and there was a very high number of veterans and prior servicemen. Um, there was also a lot of, well, I've, I've run across elementary school teachers, um, police officers, uh, which looking back on it now with the things that have happened over the last three years, it's kind of like, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, but uh, so, yeah, I mean, and then mostly just like everyday average joes man but uh there was the occasional high profile person that was like hey nobody can ever know about this i'm an elementary school teacher mm -hmm. or i work at the fucking the, the courthouse as a, a clerk mm. you know like i can't i can't be a part of this stuff in public so when you guys go out and do things i can't be there but i'll tell you this when we did the um the um documentary the fight for white supremacy I, I, I was in that documentary uh, and I really like it was at the peak of like my involvement. I was 
starting to get my four-year-old son taking him with me to these things. Oh, gosh. And, um, yeah, it's bad. Like, I'm a complete fucking douche canoe to your viewers right now. They're hating me. <laughs> um, and it's... It's okay, man. Like we're going to get, it gets better. I promise. It, it gets, gets better. Up. And Chris, that's the best segue. So next week, Chris is going to share his story about how his wife staged a successful intervention and more about his process of leaving the KKK and just reformatting his mind. Thanks for listening. If you've loved a couple episodes of this show, help me let others know by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the Good Pods app. Just share where you're listening from and why you liked a certain episode. And if you liked this episode, you'll also like the one with the man who overcame meth addiction and became a celebrity photographer. It's episode 46. Stay tuned next week for part two with Chris Buckley on how his wife successfully got him out of the KKK. Talk to you then.